everyone, I'm Joshua Schultz, Tyler Waldrop, Mel Thar. We're here at Treadwell Coffee, and make sure you tune in to Good Morning Aurora. Rise and shine, pour yourself a cup of coffee, and tune in to Good Morning Aurora. News, weather, and really cool interviews. Monday through Friday from 8 to 9 a.m. Good morning, Aurora. Good morning, Aurora. Good morning, Aurora. The time is 7.09 a.m. You are listening to Good Morning, Aurora, the second largest city's first daily news podcast. It is Monday, the 26th of April, 2021. So good morning to all of you guys. Let's take a collective sip of coffee. Yeah, that's how we're doing it this morning. Uh, So we got some great stuff coming up for you guys today. We got a great interview as well with a very special guest uh, that'll be happening soon for you guys. As you know, we do the news live on Facebook starting at 8 a.m. But here's just a couple of news topics for you guys to get you going today. Thursday, April 29th, the Criminal Justice Reform Town Hall. HB 3653 was signed into law this year by Illinois Governor uh, Patrick, excuse me, oh my goodness, I almost said Pat Quinn, throwback, <laughs> no, J.B. Pritzker, um, and the town hall for criminal justice reform is at 7 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. this evening, there is a registration link for that, which we posted uh, on our Facebook page for you guys to check out, so please do so and sign up. There's a great panel of experts as well that are going to be taking part in this wonderful event. Reverend Jeanette Wilson, Esquire of the National Executive uh, Director of Push Excel. Chris Welch, current Illinois Speaker of the Illinois House of Representatives. Kim Fox, Cook County State's Attorney. Eric Reinhardt, Lake County State's Attorney. Sharon Mitchell, Cook County Public Defender. And John Mackey, Director of Innovation of the Alliance for Safety and Justice. There's going to be a question and answer that follows at the end of that. Please register for that. Uh, the registration link again is on our Facebook page, and it will be a wonderful event. Uh, appointments are still available up until tomorrow for first dose Pfizer vaccines at 970 North Lake Street. That's the old Carson Perry Scott in Northgate Plaza. You can sign up by going to canevax.org, www.canevax.org. And as we know, the National Guard has taken over that site and it is now a state of Illinois-run testing facility. Shouts out. Volunteers are still needed for the NeighborVax Aurora Second Dose Clinic taking place on Wednesday. And that's going to be at East Aurora High School. Our wonderful state representatives and senators have come together to present this great event. State Representative Barbara Hernandez of the 83rd District, State Representative Stephanie Kipwood of the 84th District, State Representative Keith Wheeler of the 50th District, and State Senators Linda Holmes and Karina Villa are all coming together to put this on. It'll be from 9 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. And once again, that's East Aurora High School for the location 500 Tomcat Lane. Shouts out to all of our great public officials who are coming together to make sure that this happens and shouts out to East Aurora High School. United We Stride, Jesse the Law um, Torres' Boxing Club is having this Memorial Five Memorial Day, excuse me, 5K. It's going to be on May 29th. Registration is $25. Early bird special is $20 for registration. And that includes a race day medal. 
You can do this virtually or in, in person, socially distanced with a mask, uh, Wabonzi Lake Park. And it'll be at 8 o'clock a.m. on May 29th. All proceeds will go to benefit Jesse the Law Torres' boxing club. And the event could be run up to two weeks prior. So you have basically no reason not to take part. So I would encourage you to take part. Get out there and do something cool and awesome. All right, so we're going to get ready for the news here, and I want you guys to enjoy this great interview because I enjoyed interviewing this special person. Uh, also, I want to say thank you to all of our listeners, fans, and subscribers. Thank you very much, and shouts out to all of our friends of the show. We're trying to do something positive for you in the morning, give some news, and give a, a light-hearted disposition on our morning drive into work or our morning, morning wake up with the kids. So we hope that you guys are enjoying the show. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Spotify, YouTube, iTunes, and also stick around because on Wednesdays we have Noticias Frescas with our friend Noelia Ruiz of the Wabonzi Valley, Wabonzi Community College SBDC, Small Business Development Center. We do the news in Spanish on Wednesdays. And Fridays we have our sister Jeanette for Jeanette Splaining, making government bureaucracy fun and digestible. So, tune in on Wednesdays, Fridays. Tune in every day, Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. on Facebook Live. And that is the news. This is an interview we've been waiting to do for a long time. Today, on our show, we have one of Aurora's most well-known public figures, uh, a veteran, father, and a, uh, a man who needs no introduction, especially not for myself. That trail of superlatives can only lead to one man, Mayor Richard C. Irvin. Good morning, sir. Good morning. How you doing, brother? Doing all right. Glad Good to have you on the show. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, what does the C stand for? Can do. Richard. <laughs> you <laughs> that's what I tell people. Right. No, it stands for Cardell. Richard Cardell Irvin. All right. Um, now, you are, uh, you just won re-election, so congratulations Thank to you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yep. Um, it looked to be a, a very tough election, but you did it in, uh, with a good amount of grace, too, and I'm glad that you are uh, our mayor again. Well, thank you much. 45th? Uh, uh, 59th. 59th. 59th mayor of Aurora. All right. Um, so we've got a lot of questions um, for you today, but first off, sir, where were you born and raised? Aurora, Illinois. Right here in Aurora, born um, at Copley Hospital, the old Copley Hospital that's being redeveloped at this particular time. Right. Born there in 1970, man. Good old okay. day. It was a good year. It was a good year. I, that's what they tell me. I wasn't around. I wasn't around yet. All the 70s were good years, though. All right. Um, growing up, what impact did your mom have in your life? She had a huge impact. Now, you know, let me just give you a little background sure. of, of my mom. She was a teenage mother. She had me when she was 16 and my brother Kenny when she was 17. Um, so a young mother that, you know, uh, as, as we know today, you know, all too common, especially in our African-American community, young mothers, you know, uh, oftentimes, you know, get, get lost. They're kids right. themselves having kids. Unfortunately, I, I, I had my, our, my grandparents, her mother and father, that were the parent figures for all of us. Um, so, um, you know, because my grandparents were there, and my grandmother at the time was a uh, stay-at-home uh, caretaker, uh, it gave my mom the opportunity to go out and work and get a job to provide for a kid. So my mom instilled, my mom and my grandfather instilled a strong work ethic. And even though, you know, once we moved out of our grandparents' house when I was about five years old into uh, public housing, mm -hmm. Indian Trail Apartments or Rural Housing Authority, you know, my mom, even though most of the, you know, 
family members and mothers, only mostly mothers out there, were right. didn't necessarily always, you know, go go to work every day because they had to take care of the kids. Right. Because my grandparents were there, it gave my mom the opportunity to go to work. And I saw that. She got up every day and went to work and, and always had union jobs. And at times, she worked for AT&T at one point, got laid off and got two jobs, one working in a restaurant, one another working in the mall. And I, and I saw that work ethic and she instilled that in me. Um, and when you're when you were growing up, tell us some of your tell us some of your fondest memories and what was Aurora like at that time? Man, man, you know I, I often think about um, if I could go back in time, what time period would I like to go back to? And I think it was when I was about nine years old. You know, nineteen seventy nine. You know, uh, it felt like we had freedom. You know, we were riding our bikes all over the neighborhood. We didn't do much more than ride around the block. But it seemed like we were going on big adventures. Oh, know? yeah. And, yeah. You know, my grandparents were both alive. And, you know, my aunts and uncles, my great aunts and uncles, my grandparents, brothers and sisters, and my, you know, my mom's brothers and sisters, everybody was around, focused on that one little bitty house on 120 North Sumner on the, on the east side. And it was just mm -hmm. a good, you know, pure period of time, you know, where you didn't have to lock your doors or, you know, you didn't have to worry about your kids. And if we did something wrong next door, the, the next door neighbor, Richard Wilson, would spank us and send us home for our grandparents yes. spank us. You know, just, yeah. the, just the good old days where... Neighborhoods were neighborhoods. Neighbors were family. What was the downtown or um, area like at that time? You know, to tell you the truth, man, it, 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 right in the seventies is when the downtown started to make the you know decline. Okay. You know, we, the, the Fox Valley Mall was being built to change the focus of our downtown as retail, you know, um, uh, center point right. to out toward the Fox Valley Mall in this brand new area. That back in the day, to get to the Fox Valley Mall, you had to drive through corn, you pass cornfields. Now, today, in Aurora, yeah, you've seen pictures. Yeah. Yeah. There was an old um, drive-in theater, you know, uh, on Eola in New York, and, you know, it just, wow. they had many cornfields, so things have just have changed. If you had come to Aurora 40 years ago now, it's a totally different city, and, you know, over the next couple years, you know, with all the development we'll do, it's going to transform even more. Who was the mayor of Aurora in 1979? Was that Jack Hill? It was, I believe it was Jack Hill in okay. 1979. Yeah. Okay. Um, what did you want to be when you were this age? When Richard was riding bikes around town, and because uh, certainly youth have an idea of what they would like to do. What did you want to be? I want to be an astronaut, man. And, and not necessarily to go into outer space. I just, when I say astronaut, I wanted to dream big. And I did dream big. I, I always did. I had just these grand visions. And it didn't seem like it was real at the time. You know, it was just something that, you know, I'd like to strive toward. You know, you know my grandfather used to tell me when I was, when I was a boy, you know, uh, shoot for the stars. And, you know, if you don't get there, at least, you know, try to hit the moon. Any way it goes, you're in outer space and you're doing good. Uh one of the things, and I have a picture. I have a picture that I would like to show you too, because it's it's very near and dear to me, uh, and it's a memory. And I hope that you remember this memory. One of the things that's important to me is that young people um, and young people of color see themselves as people who can do great things. They don't have to just be basketball players. They don't have to just catch a football. They could be more. Um, when you talk about your grandparents, who uh, tell us about your grandfather. Who was he? What kind of man was he? He was the person who gave me the foundation of who I am today. He was that male. My, my, my father wasn't in my life. My, my mom raised uh, my brother and I you know, by herself with the help of our, our grand, my grandparents. 
uh, and he was the man that taught me to be a man. You know, he taught me, you know, very valuable lessons that at the time when he was telling me these things, I just thought it was words he was saying. Right. But as I got older, I recognized the value of those words. Uh, he told me things like, you know, every, every time you meet somebody, treat a person like you want to be treated. Treat everybody like you want to be treated, no matter how low of station in life or high of a station in life. Treat those people like you want to be treated. And he taught me everything you do, do well. You know, and, and that's I kept that those beliefs as part of who I am as a person, and they they still are today. Where'd you go to school? East Aurora High School, man. I started off at at, at Bopri School for kindergarten on the east side, then Hermes School, then uh, Simmons uh, Junior High, okay, middle school, and then on to East Aurora High School, man. I bleed, bleed black and red. I'm a Tomcat all the way. All right. And what year did you graduate? 1988. 1988. Also a good year, brother. Yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> the it was. 80s were still good. Not good <laughs> 70s, but the 80s was close, man. <laughs> 1988. I was six. How about that? Yeah, yeah. Wow. a lot of good music yeah, at that time, too. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, uh, what is your post-high school education? All right, so my post-high school education, and I'll include the military because that was an educational experience for me and kind of gave me the, uh, the military, you know, gave me a, a different type of foundation. My grandfather gave me the foundation of what it was like to be a man, a black man here in, in this country. And, and all the stories he would tell me from when he came up and, you know, went through, you know, equal but... Uh, separate but equal uh, sure. facilities, but they weren't equal at all. You know, right. He couldn't, you know, walk into certain places or sit at, you know, certain counters, you know, and, and she told me that, and it gave me the foundation. When I got to the military, you know, it, it was a different type of foundation. It gave me a sense of, of uh, pride in who I am and, in, in, as a man in this country, you know, and a sense of drive and direction, you know, uh, and it helped me to recognize that, I am capable of achieving things that I never thought, thought I was. Right. Um, so I went to the military, got out. I was looking for, I barely graduated high school, man. Uh, I, I had about a C minus average. Right. And I didn't think that I was that smart. So uh, and even though people told me when I was younger I had the gift for gab and the ability to make you know good points, even with adults, argue with adults and win arguments, it, it, education wasn't necessarily of value to me. So I was looking for a college to go to and found a two-year college called Robert Morse College. Okay. And I went there and uh, I met some a, a teacher that, you know, pulled me aside and said, Richard, you've got more talents and you know I believe in you and I think I want you to, you know, get A's on everything you do. You know, my goal was to get B's, B minuses because I knew I wasn't that good in high school. So my goal was to work hard and get a B. You right. Know, she said, I think you can get an A. I got an A on my first test and, you know, because she asked me to. And right. I, I didn't want to let her down. And um, it felt good. And I got A on the next test, the next test. And I started to believe in myself. Then I, I realized sky's the limits. And if I just put my mind to it, there's nothing I can't do. Right. So I, I left after two years. Robert Morse College became Robert Morse University. It was a four-year university. I, I left for two years and worked at a, an insurance company, Travers Insurance, as an auditor in, in Naperville. Left that because it was boring as all get out. And this is the coffee story the that we talked about before the, coffee, before the camera started that's rolling. That's I tried to learn how to drink coffee and it just didn't work for me, man. It kept putting me to sleep. You know, I put too much sugar and milk in and it was warm. Yeah. Know? But anyway, then I went back to Robert Morris when I started, decided I wanted to be a lawyer, which my family thought I was crazy, you know, but again, I, I always dreamed big. You know, even though it, it, it seemed, these dreams seem unreachable, I, I wanted to dream big. So I went back to Robert Morris to get my bachelor's degree. Got my got a bachelor's degree. I was in the, one of the first classes because it was a two-year college and it got accredited by the North Central Credit Association to become a four-year university. Wonderful. So I was in one of the first graduating classes and I said, I'm going to be a lawyer. So I was the first ever from that 
college or university to graduate and go on to higher education and uh, be accepted and, and go to law school. And Congratulations. Illinois, Illinois, thank you, sir. Northern Illinois University. Did my three years. Got a Juris Doctor. Um, that's the degree you get when you graduate from law school. Uh, took the bar, passed it on the first time, even though you know a lot of folks don't. Uh, but I, I lived and breathed studying for that bar for three months straight. That was my life. I said, failure is not an option. Another not thing an my option. grandfather taught me, failure is just not an option. And uh, I, uh, after I graduated, after I uh, passed the bar exam, I got a job as a prosecutor in Cook County, been in King County, and that's what started the whole political, political process for me. Um, now, I was aware that you were a prosecutor in Kane, but I didn't know about Cook. Yes, sir, that's where I started. Um, take us back to starting and becoming a prosecutor. Take us, what, the day you started, what was... Well, I didn't just... All right, so, again, I've always dreamed, so I started this dream a long time ago. Okay. I was, uh, after I'd left, after I quit my job as an auditor at, uh, at uh, Travis Insurance Company, I got a, I needed money, so I got a, a job as a manager out of the Fox Valley Mall, Genghis Farmer, where measuring men's inseams for tuxedos for weddings. Really? Man. So I'm sitting in the back room one day waiting. That's why you dress so well, is that it? <laughs> I'm sitting in the back room one day, man, saying, man, I can't do this for the rest of my life. I can't measure men's inseams. You know, right. I, I got I to gotta figure out what I want to do. So I'm back in the room doing some soul searching, back in, in you know, in the back room, and uh, playing Nerf Hoop, because <laughs> we had a Nerf Hoop set up mm -hmm. back there. And I'm saying, well, people say that um, whatever you do in life, you should enjoy it. So it's not really like a job, it's a career. I said, what do I like to do? And I like to watch TV, but really can't get a job watching TV. Right. I said, what else do I like to do? I said, well, I like to talk to people. I like to hear their stories. People I don't even know. I like to hear, you know, where you're from and where you're going and your, mm -hmm. your dreams. I like to hear, I like people. You know, I said, I like the feeling I get when I help people. Not even the, the appreciation from the people. I like the feeling I get. Right. You know, I said, well, what job can I get where I can talk to people? and then help people. And I said, I'm gonna be a politician. This big weight came off my shoulder. I'm like, oh my gosh. So then I said, all right, how am I gonna do it? And I'm gonna be a police officer, then I'm gonna be a lawyer, I'm gonna become a prosecutor, then I'm gonna get into politics. Got you know, the whole police thing didn't work out for me. I tried, I couldn't pass any of those tests, you know, because, you know, one of the parts of the test back then were, uh, uh, you know, the calmness, you know, of you as a person. And, and right. they did a color test. What color is more pleasing? And they wanted you to pitch yellows and pastels and light greens. Mm. Well, red's my favorite color. So that's what I was always picking. You know, they said, well, if you pick red, you know, you yeah. that's that's anger. That's rage. This is not the kind of guy we want. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, forget trying to be a police officer, man. I said, I'm going to go straight to the law school again. My family thought I was nuts. So I just did research. And back then, there was no internet. So I had to go to the library and figure out exactly what do I need to do to become a, a, a you know a law student and a lawyer. Right. So I found out the process, started working toward it, and uh, became a law student again. You know, graduated, and then started my my other my dream and my track to become a prosecutor. Became the okay. prosecutor in Cook, one of the most coveted prosecutorial positions in the country. Then I left there. You know, a thousand prosecutors. You know, mm -hmm. on 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 staff. Then I left there and became a prosecutor in Kane County with only fifty. So instead of being a small fish in a big pond, I became a big fish in a small pond. Right, right. Know, and it started my, my career. And I was, while there, my last two years as an assistant state's attorney, a prosecutor in Kane County, I was the first ever community-based prosecutor for the city of Aurora. Based in Aurora, working directly with police and the community to address issues from litter to, you know, uh, theft and, and burglary yeah. to, you know, even more serious crimes, guns and drugs and and, and, and shootings and that's amazing crime and murder yeah what year was this this was in 2002 okay mm -hmm. okay um 
what are some notable cases that you recall from that time? Are there any that you can you know share with time that's gone past? You know, it, it, I, and let me tell you this: there's a number of, of cases that I because again, my job was to work in the community with our community groups, with our police, sure. you know, on you know on a grassroots level. And there were a number of cases that I personally you know prosecuted. But what was most notable was when we could actually change a community. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Um, there was a community in Aurora that I that I that was always notorious for gang banging, drug dealing, drive by shooting, and it was called Hillcrest. And I grew up. My grandparents owned a house not too far from Hillcrest, and we used to play there as kids. And I mean, there it went from domestic battery to burglaries, car burglaries to drugs to murder out in this community. All of those social ills. All of them. All of them in one community, and uh, people lived as though. You know, even though this was their home and their their neighborhood, it was like they were prisoners in their own own home from the crime that consistently went on around there and the open and notorious drug dealing and drug sales. Open and notorious, man. I mean, the police would roll by, they stop for a second, and as soon as police turn their eye, they'd be handing up. It, it was it was notorious. These are the days of just twelve people standing on one location. Exactly obviously, right. Yeah. exactly right. And myself and the man that would later become chief of police, Bill Powell you know, from the police department, and uh, and some um, police officers at the time, you know, Cottrell Webster and, and, and Rick Algren, I mean, we were, we were like family, and we went in there and, and came up with ideas on how to change that community around, stop that criminal element, and not just that, but empower the people to continue to keep their community safe the way they did. We created we, we got the people together, the leaders in the community, made a community group, had them take pride, even though it was low-income housing or public housing, had them take pride in it you right. know, and take it back. And, man, it changed that community around where it didn't just affect that, possibly affect that community. It affected all the communities from a two-mile radius because it just stopped the the, uh, the, the violence and, and stopped that environment, man. And you go out there now, man, there's kids playing. And, and I mean, this went on for decades. My whole life it was like that. Right. And now there's kids playing, it's safety, there's cameras. It's just changed that whole community around. So that's one of the major feats that I, I think I did as a community prosecutor. Not so much in the courtroom, but in the community. Equally as important. Yes, even more as important, I think. Because you know, oftentimes in the courtroom, it's being reactive to a thing. Something's already happened. Something bad's already yeah, happened. Yeah, you're right. You know, if we go to the community and be proactive, we can stop it before it starts. You're right. You're right. Um, and that was something, I'm glad you brought up Mr. Powell, because that was a question that I, I did have as well, because I was, uh, I wanted to say that I, I tuned into the discussion with uh, Noble yes, yes, that you had um, that the on the City of Aurora's Facebook page National live. Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives. Yeah, that was awesome discussion. That Thank was great. You, sir. Thank that you. was really good. Um, I think it was for, it was in the context of I think that was Black History Month, so Dr. Yes. Jennifer Norell was on there. Yes, 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 but yes. I learned a lot more about Noble from yes. from watching that. Absolutely. Uh, and we interviewed Mr. Powell. Did awesome. You? Yeah. Right. Good um, so when did you join the Army? I joined the Army immediately after high school. Well, okay. I, I won't say immediately, about, about two months. So I graduated from high school. I remember that day, you know, like it was yesterday, man. And, you know, it was 1988. I had a Jerry Curl steal. You did? Man, they were still in style, brother. Bro, I, I can't picture. <laughs> man, I, now I, I had a nightmare once that it grew back, and I'm trying to cut yeah. it off and kept growing. Follow the drip, follow the drip. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, so I, you know, I've got my cap and gown, you know, just threw my cap in the air. My mom comes over to give me a hug and hands me $500. I thought I was rich, you know, most mm -hmm. money I ever had at one time in my life back then. And I said, all right, Mom, what now? What do I do now, Mom? Right. You know, because... 
I, college wasn't a reality for me, you know. Matter of fact, my school counselor told me I should get a factory job. But don't worry about college, you know. Right. Just get a factory job. That's kind of where your grade point uh, average, you know, suggests. Mm -hmm. And, I, and I, my mom says, well, you get a job just like me, just like your grandfather. You get a job, you know. And, I, and I'm thinking to myself, well, I really respect that you and Daddy work at the factories. And, you know, Daddy's what I call my grandfather. You know, and, and you, you bring home everything. You're working for the fans. But I just feel like there's something different for me. You know, so I kind of flopped around for two months through the summer, and I had remembered that there was a guy named Sergeant McNice, do you remember, that was a, a recruiter at high school, always talking to young boys about going to the military, and I, thought, I never thought about it. I blew him off, you know, like, McKnight, that's not for me. Mm -hmm. But after, you know, doing some soul searching for those two months as an 18-year-old and not having any direction and not wanting to go, not wanting to just simply work in a factory, wanting to do something more and right. do something more, I said, you know what, I'm going to... I, my mom didn't have any money to put me through college, so I'm going to join the military, get some GI Bill and college fund benefits, you know, and travel the world and, right. you know, serve my country. Then I'll come back and, you know, go to college and, you know, be, do something different. So that's when I joined the military in August of uh, 1988. So August of 1988, you joined the military. What was that, what was that experience like for a, uh, for a young African-American? Man, I tell you what, brother. I remember uh, <laughs> my... Uh, my first couple days in, in, in basic training, I was thinking to myself, I can't believe I volunteered for this. Right, right. <laughs> it was crazy, man. I mean, people, you know, I, I, I wasn't used to that type of structure and, you know, uh, that type of, 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 you know, someone telling you what to do constantly, day in and day out, you know. And, all and, times all the, day, the yeah. time, you know. And what they were doing was breaking me down to rebuild me. You know, and, and they did, re and I didn't realize it at the time, and they broke me down, trust me, but rebuilt me into the, you know, again, the man that I am, that I am today. Uh, it, it was an experience that I did not like it nor appreciate it, at least the first couple of years while I was there, but I would never change, never change it. I'd do it exactly the same. I would. Um, you know, I, I'll tell you something also, man, I, it, it brings together... The military brings together people from all over the country mm -hmm. that aren't necessarily the same or think the same and do things the same. And I had a room, I had a roommate, uh, his last name was Wallace, uh, that grew up in uh, in Louisiana, in southern Louisiana, mm -hmm. that was a racist. Right. He said his family, his father was in the Ku Klux Klan. He had, you know, at the time what I called a Dixie flag, which is the Confederate flag, yeah. hanging on the wall in mm -hmm. our room. And but my grandfather always taught, taught me treat people like you want to be treated. So I didn't hate Wallace. I tried to explain to him, or I tried to understand from him why he didn't like black people. Right. And what was his issue. And we talked and, and, and got to understand each other. And he said, well, this is what he told me. He says, Richard, you know, I don't like them other black people, but I like you. I said, Wallace, I'm black. He says, but I like you. I said, well, Wallace, if you like me, is it possible that if you got to know these folks over here that you determined that you hate it's because of the color of their skin? Is it possible that you may like them too? And it got him to think. And right. it got him to understand that, you know, we're all in this together. We all bleed red. We're all in, in this man's army, you know, right. protecting our country. And maybe we're more alike than we're not. So I ran into a lot of people from a lot of walks of life that were nothing like me, that didn't grow up like me, that grew up better, grew up worse, that were, you know, black, white, you know, Latino, and that were racist and, and hateful, that we all came together as family at some point. And, you know, it, again, it helped me to understand people. Which, Military service does yes, that. Yes, it, yes it does. And it helped me understand people at every level, which is which helped me to become the public servant that I am today. Uh, what was your MOS? 
88 Mike. I was a glorified truck driver, man. Uh, but I had I had a high class um, ranking, uh, and uh, you know, my job I was in a, I was assigned to a tank unit. So my job um, was to transport tank weaponry uh, from one location to another. And, and this, when I say tank weaponry, these were what are called missiles that were you know like four feet tall. You know that once a tank you know uh, Abram shot off one of those, it felt like an earthquake. Right. You know. So that was my job in Germany when I got to Germany, and I was in Germany for a couple of years. But then I got sent to Saudi Arabia during the Gulf War, and I had a whole different kind of job and a different kind of experience. You've driven a tank before? Yes, or, yes, yes, yes. Really? Mm -hmm. And while I was in Saudi Arabia. I'm going to take a guess, and I'm going to guess that for a guy who grew up in public housing, joy, uh, driving a tank had to be king of the world <laughs> kind of activity. Man, I'll tell you what, I was in a desert. When I was driving this tank, you know, sand flowing up in the air, me just going, and, and it has this particular rumble because mm -hmm. it doesn't have tires. It has, you know, these tracks, yeah, yeah. you know, and so it's typical, and it's, it's it's joysticks like you're like you're almost playing a video game, you know. Yeah, so it, it's a it was a strong feeling, man, to be behind that much kind of power, right? You know, it's power. Man. And uh, you are a combat veteran. You were in that. You said the Gulf War. Yes, sir. All right. Um, I was at the Veterans Assembly. And I heard you give a great speech and tell a story about being in Saudi Arabia, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. And you guys were, the, the threat at that time was chemical weapons attacks yes. by the Iraqi forces. Absolutely. Uh, and I think there was a Scud missile attack, which you guys witnessed. Mm -hmm. um, take me back to that day. And the reason why I ask this is because I, I believe that people don't understand the gravity of a situation, being away from home, um, and being in another country, people who haven't traveled and been outside the United States, I don't think they understand like what other parts of the world are like. Take us back to that day, because I, what I want to get from you is, how scared were you? Well, well, that was the the, the very the day, the day you talk about. Now I'll explain this the story in, in a second. That was the very day that I decided that I wanted to spend the rest of my life in public service, in service of someone. You know, I, I you know, I know I want to join the military. You know, at that time I'm, I'm 20 years old, not much more than a teenager. You know, I, I knew I wanted to go to college after, but I didn't have real direction. You know, again, I, it was just a couple. It was just, it had been a couple years since I asked my mom, "What am I going to do with the rest sure. of my life?" You know, and uh, and I hadn't you know gotten out of the military and gone to college and followed any of the dreams yet that I had, that I had made for myself. But on this particular day, it defined me for the rest of my life. And um, what happened was, uh, you know, my mission over there in Saudi Arabia was to transport goods and weaponry from Daman port, where the Navy and the Marines uh, brought, the, uh, brought the people and, and our equipment in right. to the front line. So it was like going from uh, New York to California. It took a couple days to get there, three days to get there, about three days to get back. My job, the military didn't have their own vehicles initially when we got there, so they commissioned the nationals, the Saudi Arabians, to drive our, our tanks and our people from the port to the front line. Right. So my job was to be an armed guard to make sure, that in driving this vehicle with this person, be an armed guard to make sure this person actually went to where he was supposed to go. Mm -hmm. And it was, it, it, there was not convoys, you know, where a lot of trucks, we're just me and this guy on the open road in the desert driving, you know, to the front lines of Kuwait from the port. This particular day that, that, that I've spoken of before, 
you know, we were, it was early in the morning, about five o'clock in the morning, and we had just been told by a three-star general, David Four, that Saddam Hussein normally retaliates within 48 hours of aggression. Right. And um, a war had just been declared by the United States of America. And he says, go get to the front line, hurry up and get, get the front line. Joe, that's what they call the military, and then hurry up and all the uh, soldiers in the military call us Joe. Get to the line, Joe, G.I. Joe. Get mm -hmm. to the line, Joe, and hurry up and get back, you know, so, you know, you don't you know, get involved in the skirmish that is, you know, bound to happen uh, very soon. So this particular day is 5 o'clock in the morning. The sun hadn't even come up. Me and my fellow soldiers uh, were standing outside waiting to get on a transport van. And the place, we lived in a place called Cobalt Towers, which became famous because later it was blown up by, by missiles. Yep. We, we stayed in Cobalt Towers. Uh, we came out. We were waiting to get on the transport van. As we waited there, all of a sudden we heard this loud siren that went off, blaring. I mean, so piercing and blaring. You could feel it in your very soul. You could feel it in your bones. And uh, when, we, when we, we heard that loud siren, our, our, our mission, our, our responsibility was to go into what's called Mop 4. Anybody in the military knows what I'm talking about. Mop 4 means you go into full mop gear. Rubber gloves, rubber boots, uh, a, 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 a um, gas suit, which was like charcoal filled, right. um, gas suit, and a gas mask. Uh, and you'd be standing by with this chemical that you were supposed to inject in yourself if for some reason there was chemical agent in. Yeah, man, yeah. <laughs> a chemical agent in the air. So, but that was only if chemical agent was determined. So right. we had that at the ready. So we're laying in full mop gear, and after we, you know, got in this full mop gear, we laid on the ground and pointed our M16s in the air, waiting for something to happen. Not pointing at anything in particular, just waiting for something to happen with our, with our, you know, chemical agent right. next to us, waiting to see if there was going to be some type of uh, chemical in the air that would, that would potentially kill us. So as we lay there watching in the sky for something to happen, because this siren meant that there was missile activity that was going to, that was going to occur soon. We started to see a, a, a dark shadow just out of the night sky, dark shadow with a tail of light behind it. And this dark shadow seemed to get closer and closer. And we just lay there with our, with our M16s pointed in the air, no one saying anything, just silence, just laying there waiting for something to happen, knowing that there's no way we're going to be able to shoot anything out of the air, but pointing our M16s, just not anything at all, just in hope that it may save us in some kind of way. And I remember there were three things that, that I could clearly, as as I'm sitting here right now, three things that I can clearly remember of that day. That siren blaring so loud that it permeated my very soul. You know, the, the sound of my breath gasping for air in that gas mask as I lay there on the desert floor with my M16 pointing in the air, seeing this, this dark monster come, come toward me with this light, this tail of light. And my, the sound of my own voice saying, is this the day that you're going to die? And it said that over, my voice said that over and over as I laid there, which seemed like for hours, but it was probably only, you know, a matter of minutes. Right. And then I told myself, if I don't die today, I'm going to spend the rest of my life making sure things like this don't happen, making sure I right what's wrong, making sure that I help things. Now, I won't be here in Saudi Arabia because it's the same where I'm from. Right. But when I go home, back to the world, that's what we call the United States, mm -hmm. the world. You know, when I go back to the world, you know, I want to spend the rest of my life doing things for people, putting right those wrongs. And, you know, as I lay there, you know, thinking, you know, hearing my breath, hearing that siren, you know, gasping for, for air, uh, and, you know, and hearing my voice, all of a sudden a Patriot missile came out of the sky and, you know, blew this Scud missile up. And it was truly bombs bursting in air as we saw the molten steel right out of the air, still laying there wondering if there was going to be chemical agent in this, you know, in this explosion. 
and then eventually we got the all clear signal from the MPs that were in the area and we got up, took off our gas masks, our boots, our gloves, our, our suits, all in silence. Stood there in line, got on that transport van, went to the port and you know, performed our mission as we always did. But that day defined my life of service from that point on. What needs to change in America? I think we need to recognize that there is no us against versus them. There is no us against them. There is only us. There's only us. You know, I think we recognize it during you know 9/11 and the terrorist attacks uh, that we came together as a country. It didn't last long because once that wore off and you know we began our war, you know, against uh, the Middle East and Iraq, you know, we started focusing on our hatred and differences toward each other. Once we recognize that we are all in this together, we're all the same, no matter what color our skin, no matter the language we speak, no matter the religion we practice, we are all Americans. We're all, you know, in this together. There's only us, the U.S., us. And once we recognize that and recognize that as only us, we're all family with each other. Um, people say to me, you know, why do you call everybody brother? You know, because I, I look at every person like they are my brother or sister. Right. And if I do that, then I will treat every person like my brother and sister, and that's with love. Right. So, you know, I, I think if we start focusing on, you know, that we are, are, I am my brother's keeper, my neighbor is my family, right. you know, then I think we'll be better as a society. I worked downtown Chicago for many years. I lived uh, downtown Aurora, and I would commute on the train, meet folks down there. Hey, Kurt, where you live, brother? Yeah. Oh, I live in, uh, live in Aurora. Kind of. Mm, kind of whatever. And, uh, but I'm seeing uh, Aurora downtown, nice stuff going on, and it's beautiful, and this is before COVID, so nice, sunshiny, good stuff. Um, and I, in this question, I want to talk about what I have termed the Aurora riots, okay? I feel that that was a black eye for the city. Where were you that day? Take us back to that day. All right, so that was a long day, and, and it started off um, in the parking lot of the police department and the first protest that we had right. um, about the, the murder of George Floyd. Um, and the country was angry over mm -hmm. this, and it, it's, it was no different here in the war. The Warrens were angry. Sure. And uh, it started out as a, a peaceful protest, and I had the opportunity to speak there. Uh, and talk about the need to maintain peace, you know, to make sure that, you know, although we all need our voices heard, we've got to do it peacefully. But there was a faction of individuals that showed up for the purpose of causing a riot, causing, you know, indifference right. and creating animosity. As a matter of fact, once the crowd began, began to calm to some extent, because whatever happened, you know, the murder that happened in George Floyd didn't happen in Aurora. It, happened, it didn't even happen in Illinois. It happened three states away. You know, but as as affected as, as every other city throughout the country has affected by it, so you know, and and as a black man, I understood, you know, the 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 need to protest, the need to you know upset the apple cart, you know, so mm -hmm. we can so we can have the change that we need to you know make us all feel like we're equal here in society. I understood, that, you know, but there's a faction that that I saw break break off and said we're not going to listen to that. We're not going 
cool us down and confuse us and talk us out of doing what we came to do. Right. And then that's when, you know, all hell broke loose, man. And first they, this, this mob marched up to the outlet mall, but at the particular time, the National Guard was up there because they just happened to be up at the outlet mall because testing for COVID was going on. And they were um, uh, conducting the testing, the right. National Guard. So the outlet mall was blocked off by National Guard vehicles. They saw that and decided it was too much, too difficult. But if they're going to the outlet mall, it, clearly they were going to cause damage. Right. So then from there, they marched from the outlet mall, which is you know, north of uh, the expressway here right. in Aurora, all the way downtown Aurora. You know, not just in circles, marching, you know, picking it, but they marched to a location. And once they got to downtown Aurora, man, they, they, this destruction began. You know, I mean, people came with the idea that this, this wasn't just something that just got out of hand. They came with the idea that there was going to be damage. People bought bricks. People bought bats. People bought, you know, we had, I, and I'll tell you where I was at to see all this. People brought gallons of what appeared to be liquid, which later we determined was gasoline, which they used to set police cars on fire. And after the um, protest got out of hand at the police um, parking lot, right. myself and the chief were taken into what's called the emergency operations center. It's like our situation room here for the city. And uh, and there we had uh, drones in the air and, and other camera access that we had available to us. And we watched, we watched as, as, this, as the mob marched from you know, the outlet mall to the downtown and erupted into violence and, 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 and just terrible. And you watch this, they burned down this downtown that we worked, as you pointed out, worked so hard over the last couple, couple years to improve. And it was, dis, it was disheartening. It was abject hooliganism. Absolutely. Absolutely. How'd you feel? Man, I, I, I felt terrible, man. I felt terrible. I, you know, I, and, you know, so... I'm mayor of the city, man, and, and you know my job is to protect the city. You know, working with the police department, so we have 300 police officers out there standing strong with 1,300 folks. And, and out of these 1,300 people, you couldn't tell who were peaceful and who were pro just peaceful protesters and who were rioters. You, you, and it, 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 man, it just felt I felt helpless. And the reason why I bring this up because it, uh, as I started when I talked about this, how people perceived this city that I lived in or live in. Um, you know, I know two black-owned businesses that were, that were vandalized. Absolutely. I, I, and and I, I asked myself, did they not get the memo? They didn't care. Because those folks came with specific interest in mind, specific goal in mind, destroy. Not, and, and, and at some point, it wasn't even about the murder of George Floyd. It was about their ability to take advantage of a circumstance and to right. destroy um, what do people, what is, what is a common misconception about a mayor that folks have? I have absolute authority and control to make things happen. <laughs> that is a common misconception. Look, man. I, so you I, can't I, with the snap of your No, fingers? no, I can't. I can't. And, and, and another misconception is, you know, that I know everything all the time that goes on in this large city. You know, and if I don't, I should. And, I, and I'm like, that's not reality, man. I'm the executive. I'm one guy, you know, and I've got chiefs that work for me. And then, you know, division heads that work under that. And then put, there's 1,300 employees. There's a second largest city in the state, $450 million budget, you know, 200, over 200,000 residents. And I don't have absolute power. I, I don't. And, and no person should. 
you know, I, like the President of the United States, I'm the executive. And, you know, just like Congress, I have a legislative body as well that right. actually are the ones that really make the decisions. It might be on my ideas, but I just don't snap my fingers. I've got to put it in front of them and say, what do you 12 think? They're called all of them. Right. You know? And if they think it's a good idea, they'll agree with it, and we do it. If they think it's a bad idea, they won't agree with it, and we won't do it. Simple as that. A friend of the show told me, she says, that I must ask you this question. What's the coolest thing about being mayor? Coolest thing about being mayor, man. You know, I, there are a couple things that I look at as cool about being mayor. The definition of cool. I, the coolest thing about being mayor is I get to help people, man. I get to do that thing that I said I was going to do all those years ago, laying on that cold ground in the desert, watching that scud missile come toward me. I get to, I get to help people, man. I get to put things right, you know, um, and. and and I get to do it with style and flair and be the leader. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the, yeah. the coolest thing, man, I, I tell you what, when I, um, when I swore in as, as mayor of Aurora, I did it on a Tuesday. On a Wednesday, I, I, I never went to my office in, in City Hall. The next very next day, I went to Springfield to let people know that I'm a new mayor and, you know, mm -hmm. new sheriff in town, second right. largest city, you know, and, and, and we're going to be needing, you know, support and resources to help Aurora grow because we've got plans. Right. So I was there for two days. I came back to city, city to, to my office in City Hall. Uh, that that first day, the sun was shining. I parked my car in the mayor's in the mayor's spot for uh -oh. the first time, <laughs> and I'm walking up uh, to uh, I'm walking up the there's a hill to City Hall where the park from where the parking lot is, and I'm saying to myself, man, I'm the mayor, I'm the mayor of the city. And I might have jumped up in the air and clicked my heels like in a Toyota commercial a little bit, man. And I'm looking around to make sure nobody sees me doing it. It's early in the morning. And I walk into City Hall, and I get to the third floor where the mayor's office is, and I step off the elevator, and I look at the, at the door, and my name is on it, Richard Sierra. And I didn't expect it to be changed that quickly. You know, I didn't know what I expected. I mean, it had been the other mayor for 12 years' name on the door every time I went to the third floor to visit him. Right. And my name was on it, man. And, and, and it was just a humbling feeling that, you know, I get to be the mayor of the second largest city in the state, over 200,000 residents, uh, a city I grew up in, you know, born and raised in, and it just felt, it felt good. COVID has had a huge impact on this city in many ways. Uh, first of all, the cost, the human cost. Secondly, economic. What are the plans that you have for Aurora, um, not post-COVID, but vaccines are uh, being more distributed. Mm -hmm. We've got uh, canevax.com where folks can sign up. Carson's on Lake Street, 970 North Lake Street, different things. Uh, I've been proud to volunteer at some of those events. Uh, I, I do like what the city is doing to help our people. What's the plans for uh, moving forward? Well, man, the reality is COVID, COVID was, was and is a reality right. here throughout this country and in, you know, in this state and in this city. Right. Um, the plan is to move forward, recognizing COVID exists, but to follow through with all the plans that we had started, you know, years ago. Plans that I have been dreaming out, dreaming about for decades. This will not stop us. This will not slow us down. Even, you know, we took a, a little break because the the world had to, sure, you know, get COVID in check. But now it's time to kick open these doors. It's time to get back to work. It's time to get back to building. It's time to get back to moving the world forward. And now, you know, with the support that we're getting from the federal government, you know, and the, the COVID relief dollars that we expect will come that will, that will you know, um, plug that hole, that, that gap that 
was caused by the lack of revenue from all that time we were shut down. Right. Our outlet mall, our Fox Valley Mall, our, our casino, our, our theaters, you know, the, the whole city. You know, we're going to use that money and, and, and invest it so we can get a return on investment uh, over the next couple years. And we're going to push Roar forward. We've already got so many plans and we're ready to roll. We're ready to kick these doors open and make it happen. I noticed that the bridge was completed even during yes. COVID. That is awesome. I look forward to sitting or perhaps standing on that bridge watching fireworks and for when that happens. Uh, River Edge Park seems to have, they have a summer schedule that, that's been announced, Absolutely. so I think that'll be coming. Starting in July. Coming back, yeah. yeah. Um, sir, your detractors say you're out of touch. Are you? All right. So I actually I had a conversation about uh, one of the things that, that we're going to recreate here in the city of Aurora is mm -hmm. our neighborhood outreach um, team. Uh, oftentimes, when you ask me, you know, what are the misconceptions as mayor? One of the misconceptions is that I can be everywhere all the time doing everything. You know, that I sh there are people that have groups over here that want me over here. There are people that have functions over here that want me over here. I, I'm, one, I'm one person. I right. can't do everything. I can't be everything to every per every group, you know, to all people. I've got to, you know, be the, the leader, the guy at the top creating the vision. And then the folks under me have to help make that vision come to life. So when people say I'm out of touch, I think what they mean is I'm not out in the community as much as they would like me. I'm not participating in their events as much as they would like me to. But unfortunately, being only one person, I have to, you know, create, a, I have to have a role that makes the whole system work. And, you know, what I want to do more is make sure that in this system that's working, we touch every part of the city. We touch the neighborhoods. We touch the communities. We touch everything that we need to touch to make sure that, you know, uh, that all of our residents are satisfied. But, you know, I, 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 unfortunately, I'm just one person. And I, I wish I could have more of me, but, you know, and I'm sure a lot of us do. Right. You know, but, but unfortunately, that just can't happen. And when people say I'm out of touch, I think, it's because they don't recognize that, you know, I'm the executive, I'm the guy at the top, and I can't be all those things that people want me to be. And that, that's why we have the uh, city infrastructure that we have. Right, exactly. Twelve aldermen, exactly. a city council, things like that. Right, right. And, and, and let me just say this. Because, you know, I'm born and raised here, and I know so many people, especially in, our, in our, my black community, they expect of me that I be like what I used to be, Richard from the block, from the hood, that, you know, but I can't be that anymore. I just can't. I'm glad you said that. I have a picture that I would like to show you. Yes, sir. I want to know if you remember this. Remember that? Wow. I sure, man, wow. Wow. That's me and my son. Man, how old is he now? He's uh, eight. He'll be nine this year. Oh, wow. Um, so cool. that was, uh, I think that was about a year ago, yeah. maybe a little bit more. Um, you were out riding bike. Yeah. My son and I were playing, and uh, you came oh. over, and that means a lot to me. And the reason why that means a lot is because um, I am happy that my son can see African Americans doing something other, as, as I said when I started, than catching footballs and dunking the basketball and being somebody, uh, somebody of a of a of a strong caliber. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad you remember it, too. Because I was hoping, like, I hope he doesn't like it. <laughs> All right. Um, so we talked about the city. What's next for Richard Urban? 
And you know, a lot of folks ask me that, especially because I won this last election with such a large margin. But let me tell you, man, I, I, I focused, man, most of my adult life on being here and being the mayor of the city of Aurora, man. So what's next is just doing a, a, a damn good job over these next four few years as mayor and taking Aurora to the next level and continue to transform our city back to what people say it used to be 50, 60 years ago, you know, uh, and, and just being a, being a good public servant. You know, if I, there is another office for me in the future, you know, I, I'll, do, I'll, I'll think about that when that time comes or if it presents itself. But right now, I just want to be a good mayor. Um, lastly, the show ends on a final note, on a, excuse me, on a positive note. What is your message to the people of Aurora today and going forward? Man, over this last couple years, from Pratt mass shooting to COVID-19 to civil unrest, uh, the in, uh, instability of our, of, our, of our budget and our, our revenue and income through the city. And we've been through a lot, man. Just know that we are Aurora strong. And that's just not words that we say. That's who we are as a community. That's who we are as a people. We are strong. And we, were, we have overcome and we will continue to overcome. And let's continue to work to make our community the best community we possibly can. And not just for us, for our future, for our kids' future, for our kids' kids' future. You know, let's 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 be family, man. Let's let's be let's be the Aurora that I know we have the ability to be. Let's make each other proud. Sir, on behalf of Good Morning Aurora, we appreciate you coming on to the show and talking to us. Glad. My pleasure to be we here. We really do. And congratulations on your successful uh, re-election. And we uh, we appreciate you as a veteran. And we are uh, looking forward to um, your leadership taking us into the uh, next era for the next four years. My pleasure. All right. Looking forward to it. All of you guys out there, thank you for tuning in to this wonderful episode. We appreciate Mayor Irvin, and uh, be blessed, and have a wonderful day. Peace.